Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. For this episode, I'm joined by writer, performer and podcaster Richard Daniels. Richard is the creator of The Occult Terrier of Albion, a part-work zine and podcast series that explores a wide range of strange goings-on in locations that feel familiar, but exist in an alternate England, just beyond the horizon of the one we know about. He describes it as a world designed by torch and moonlight, dedicated to revealing the truth about the paranormal. In the interview, we start by talking about how the Occultaria came into being, the way that it explores the nature of the paranormal through a fictional lens, and the insights gained by doing that. We go on to discuss ghosts, urban legends, conspiracy theories, UFOs, and the weird charisma of electricity pylons, to name just a few things. Enjoy! Richard, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So how did the idea for the Occultaria of Albion start out? Um, it, well, it, it sort of, when it happened, it happened quite quickly. But I think at the beginning, it was like a quite a slow burn. I'd, I'd already been doing some writing and I'd already invented uh, this a village called Low Scarabee. Uh, for a, a couple of short stories that I'd written, and it seemed to me that that was quite a quite an interesting idea to have sort of invented this this village uh, that sort of existed in the Lincolnshire Wolds, and it just got me on the train of thought about kind of uh, fictional places and you know how much you can do with them, uh, particularly when it comes to sort of like the paranormal, supernatural, and horror. Um, there's a lot sort of you can explore once you've created some sort of a fictional reality. Um, so that was sort of bubbling away. And then in September of 2019, um, myself and Melody Phelan Clark, who does the artwork for the Occultaria of Albion, we went to a conference in Sheffield, um, the um, Centre for Contemporary Legend, which is uh, sort of a department out of the Sheffield Hallam University. We went to that and it was like a conference on folk horror, folk horror revival, um, folklore on screen, all things like that. You know, it talked a lot about Nigel Neal uh, and Creepypasta and, and things like that. And it kind of just sort of set me even more thinking about this kind of fictional reality that I'd already begun to create. And then sort of a few months after that, I, I thought, well, why not create this um, sort of fake part work series you know of the kind that you used to get in magazines in like the 70s and the 80s that you could sort of like collect and build up your part work and I thought that would be a good sort of um aesthetic to um to sort of like borrow from and use the tropes of and, and bring in like this horror and the supernatural and the paranormal into this and so I decided to call it the Occultaria of Albion and sort of have each edition as like a separate case file about a, uh, a location somewhere in in the UK where strange things had happened and it's like a, a collection of all the all the weird paranormal events at that particular location and so because I'd already created this village called Low Scarabee I thought I'd start there 
So, and for some reason, I decided that I would imagine that there'd already been six editions of this. And so my first one was actually episode six, uh, sorry, episode seven, you know, uh, case file number seven. Um, and so I sort of put that together. Melody, as I said, sort of like did the, the artwork and the design of it. And we put that out and it, it sort of did quite well. And a few people bought it and picked up on it. And, and so I hadn't really thought beyond doing one and just to sort of see what would happen. And then because it was quite good and um, I really enjoyed the process <laughs> of making it, uh, we decided to make another one of another location. And we thought, well, we've done seven. Maybe we should go back and do six. And then so from there, we started working backwards from seven down to one. <laughs> so that was it, really. Blast off, you know, like a countdown. Yeah, I, I like it. You were generous enough to send a few copies over to me, and I really enjoyed reading them. Uh, oh, good. It feels very much like you were inspired by real places. Was that the case? Um, yeah, I, I suppose there's, there's like a, a basis of, of the real in all, all of it. Um, you know, it's a bit like l- landscapes of your mind where, you know, you've perhaps as a child you've been somewhere, like you've been to some location and like a day trip um, and you sort of like have these half-remembered kind of feelings and experiences that you've associated with some odd place that you've never really been to much before and it's kind of that uh, sort of ghostly figment in your mind of of places that you've been that I wanted to sort of um, dive into and so you know as a child I was taken to uh, like stately homes and uh, you know lakes and seaside places and all sorts of things like that and so a lot of these places are just these different type of topographies um, I also have like an industrial estate. Spanton Industrial Estate is is one of the uh, case file editions. So you know all kinds of mundane, everyday uh, locations. You know where you don't necessarily think that the weird or horror is, you know, would be a place where that would take place. I think it's it's that sort of blend of the mundanity with the sort of fantastic. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. In the zines that you sent to me the the places are sort of like pubs and crossroads and, and yeah. theaters um and i, I really like that it's the, what you're doing seems like a an interesting way to explore the nature of paranormal events yeah i, I think so I, I think you know because there's we're all familiar with how these sort of paranormal stories start you know like there's the kind of the typical you know, sort of location or event in some way. Like, so I, like in the theatre one, you know, theatre land has got loads of kind of ghost stories and uh, supernatural occurrences associated with it. So I like to take those and kind of work with them in a, in a weird or slightly outlandish sort of way, you know, like the haunted theatre and, and the sort of ghosts and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, like, I have sort of re- reoccurring uh, themes as well, like this idea of a of a cult religion that crops up in different locations in different ways. You know, so all these kind of stories that everybody's quite familiar with within the realm of the supernatural and and horror, uh, particularly now with the internet. You know, when you go on YouTube and there's so many of those kind of paranormal investigation. 
channels and things like that. So it's trying to take the the familiar, the strangely familiar, and making it and doing something mundane with it almost. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It it reminds me of. I'm not sure if it was the same for you, but when I was when I was at school, yeah, uh, like a primary school even, there'd be sort of stories about. Well, in my case, it wasn't to do with paranormal. I remember clearly a story where it wasn't long after some security fencing had gone up near our school, and you know it's the it's the horrible iron one with the with the spikes at the top. Oh right, yeah. Not long after that, I remember there being a story that a motorcyclist had had an accident and got impaled on them. And I'm pretty sure that, that didn't happen, but it really stuck with me for a long time. It's a horrible thing to think about. And and was that something that went through the school as well? Do you think that was passed on to the different years? Yeah, yeah, definitely. For some reason, it's just, it's, it's never really left me. I have a clear memory of that day uh, at primary school. Um, but that's... <laughs> That's brilliant. That's the sort of the, I definitely agree that that's the sort of thing that I'm almost reaching towards with the Aquateria of Albion, that those kind of unsettling, half-remembered things from the past that, you know, that seems so individual, like to your childhood. Uh, and I'm sure, I don't know if you spoke to other people from that time, you know, that you were friends with, if you could get in touch with them again or whatever, and sort of like, say, oh, do you remember that story about, you know, the motorcyclist and you know, and it will suddenly come back to other people as well. You know, there's a kind of a mundanity to it, and there's also the, the fantastic to it as to whether is it true or not, and, and so mm. on. And and in the in the zines as well, it feels like a, it's harking back to a bit of a pre-internet era where journals like like the zine were the place where you'd get this information, and these stories were sort of transmitted by word of mouth it it took me back to to that that to that kind of time uh, i think yeah i i do i i did consciously sort of set it in in a the way i frame it is that i'm just now the sort of archivist and the custodian of all these old um zines all these old magazine case files and i'm the one that's simply retrieving them from storage if you like and I'm kind of blowing the dust off them and reformatting them and, and sending them out updated or like not updated, even just kind of reprinting them and making them available. So that the kind of conceit is that these are all things that were written back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I'm just kind of finding them and putting them out there again. So there's that kind of past quality that's hard baked into it, you know, and so therefore there is at the time that these things are set, there was no internet or whatever. So it, it does carry on that um, oral tradition of passing on legends and stories. And, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of the cases, there's uh, often, they're ghost stories that seem to have survived because of the locals in that vicinity that have talked about it or passed on ideas about it that are picked up on by, um, you know, academics that are studying it or just kind of armchair investigators that have picked up on it and may, and are maybe writing their own book on on it and i and and the way it's written it's as if like it's just collating all that kind of urban legend local history type of thing hmm. so have you always had an interest in the paranormal 
Um, I guess, well, I wouldn't necessarily say in such a sort of focused way. I suppose I've always had uh, this imagination and like creating stuff. Like I've, I've, I've written for a long, long time. And I think if you're into that sort of imaginative uh, realm or, you know, where you are constantly creating, then you've got to have some sort of interest in the other, in the kind of the otherworldly and the fantastical. And, you know, as a child, how can you not be sort of fascinated by the paranormal and the supernatural? I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was kind of central to my life all the time, but there was always, it's, it's always been on the fringes and I've always had like this open open mind to kind of exploring and finding out about these kind of strange things. Um, so it's always kind of been in the, like the background radiation, I think, of my of my psyche or something like that. Hmm. Are there any editions of the Uncle Terry of Albion zine that have taken inspiration from from places that you you were aware of growing up, places that where you may have experienced something? Um, I think it it's sort of peppered throughout. I wouldn't say there was there was just like one necessarily. I think I take all those sort of inspirations or ideas. I mean, like there's there's one edition which is about a reservoir, Thackford on Yap. Um, and I, I remember being taken to like Rutland Water when I was when I was a kid two or three times, which is sort of uh, just on the border of Leicestershire, um, and you can cycle around it and walk around it, and there's boats and things, uh, and just going to this big sort of inland body of water as a child, it was um, quite a different experience, and the and the you know, just all the, the countryside around about. And I suppose things like that have sort of stuck with me. I mean, I can't say there was, I mean, in the Thackford on Yap uh, zine, there's a, like a Bigfoot type creature. So I'm just sort of like bringing in something fantastical like Sasquatch or Bigfoot into a sort of a fairly mundane uh, in, slice of industrial architecture like a, a reservoir. And I like putting those two things together in a context, you know, in, in terms of in Britain, it probably wouldn't really, wouldn't really exist. You know, it's very much a, an American thing, the, the Bigfoot legend. But, you know, obviously here we have phantom beasts as well, like uh, black cats and and so on. So, and I also have, um, there's, there's one edition that's uh, set in a seaside village called Cragsyke Bay. Now, I grew up, on the coast, I grew up in a seaside town, and so uh, again, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of inspiration was taken from just my childhood, growing up by the seaside, I suppose. And there's, you know, similar to to what you were saying about the uh, the story of the the fence and the motorcyclist being impaled on that. There was always stories like that floating around in the air when you were a child, like that. You know, especially where I was at the seaside, there was like you know strange homeless people that live on the beach and you know they'd done something horrific which is why they were living out there and and just things like that strange stories like that that are always seem to be around when you're a child mm, yeah um you have a, a podcast with uh, sort of like the audio files version of the aquateria and the i really enjoyed the green demon episode i thought that was that was a really interesting look at what this what these sorts of entities might be yeah it's sort of again mixing up the the ufo which is a very kind of otherworldly astral sort of 
phenomena with something that's very earthy and earthbound, like uh, some mysterious creature from the time, you know, the land that time forgot sort of thing, and putting those two ideas together. Um, yeah. So, like, as you say, the podcast audio files is like an updated version of the um, case files that, that come in the zine form. So the, the podcast is is me in the present day carrying on this tradition of exploring and investigating strange phenomena, that, which is what the zine did back in the 70s and 80s. So it's like my opportunity to kind of do it in audio form, but in the in the modern times. So it allows me a bit more leeway to do strange things and record odd sounds and things like that. Mm. So one thing I'm interested in is that from writing the case files, Mm. which cover a a really broad range of unusual phenomenon, do you feel like you've gotten an insight into what might be happening when people are reporting these things because some things that people have witnessed are very odd. I mean, it's high strangeness, I think, is generally how it's classified. And yeah. and I'm always interested in how how subjective these experiences might be. Not to say they don't happen, but they seem very much often very centered on that person. And from from your experience of writing the, the case files, do you feel like you have an insight into what might be happening? Um, no, probably not. <laughs> but I think what I do do is that I approach it from when I'm talking about a case or I'm talking about a character that's had an experience, I always try to put myself in the in the mindset of this person is completely convinced that what they say happened has happened. And this is a genuine experience or event that has occurred. And, you know, it's like playing it straight or or what have you, you know, rather than doing it from a an undermining kind of point of view or in a kind of laughing at them i am totally with them in the fact that i'm with them and i believe what they're saying as the writer i kind of i convince myself that it's absolutely true as well whilst whilst at the same time remaining sort of skeptical so it's this strange dichotomy that i i tend to hold in my head but i think for the genuine cases where where people report these sorts of things whether it be you know kind of paranormal experiences or ufos or whatever i think it's so hard to know you know where the the line between you know that where the subjective experience is just some sort of psychotic or mental issue that they might be experiencing for whatever reason whether it be just because that's you know the the chemical instance in their brain or whether it's through you know other issues that they might have or whether it's just simply attention seeking or whether it's um something that they truly believe they've experienced but could be explained away by very normal everyday explanations um it's it's so hard to know isn't it i'm, I'm sure that there is a, a small percentage of of these things which are kind of unexplainable and that's that's the kind of the nugget isn't it it's like you're panning for gold and it's that one little nugget of unknowable, can't put it into the pile of fake, can't put it into the pile of mental health issues or whatever. It's, it's that kind of unknowable nugget, which I think everybody's kind of, that's why you people are into these things is because they're looking for that thing that can't be explained away, I suppose. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think you make a good point. I, I, I'd rather believe someone than not. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, quite people are often quite reluctant to, to tell people these things because they're of what people might think of them. And so I guess it's good to have that, to be that person that will at least listen to them and, and take them seriously. I remember reading an article in the 14 Times by Jenny Randalls, and she was talking about that, how a lot of the people that came to her to report what they'd witnessed, she saw that she saw her role as that, as being someone that they could talk to. And, because in some cases, it can be quite traumatic what's happened to them. And to not be believed doesn't help, I guess. Well, I, the, I mean, the people that, that come with that fear of being laughed at or, you know, being labelled as crazy or whatever, then I suppose you're automatically more inclined to to believe them from the get-go or at least believe that they are completely sincere about what, what they say they've experienced because they've got that fear of the ridicule. Whereas... It's the people that have got no, <laughs> that have got no um, fear of being accused of, you know, being a charlatan, or or that have got no compunction about telling you something completely outlandish. Is not that you know you shouldn't necessarily not believe them, but just that it suddenly strikes you as a little bit odd. I find that they've got no filter, that they don't see how other people might not genuinely think that that's a little bit odd. You know, so either their their mental kind of situation is is such that you know they're they're experiencing certain things like mental health issues, maybe, um, or or they're just kind of putting you on or whatever. So it's the people that are actually genuinely kind of worried about being believed. I think that makes them that bit more believable, probably. Hmm. Yeah, I I would agree there. So um, since you started the project, has has anyone contacted you after having read a zine and not so much thought it was real, but contacted you saying, well, for example, you, you talk about a, a big radio transmitter and weird, weird stuff happening there. And I'm just curious, has anyone yeah. contacted you saying, well, it, I know what you've written is fiction, but actually. Um, <laughs> uh, well, no, no, unfortunately not. I would love that to happen, though, for, uh, for somebody to say say that you know like I know this is all fictional but um but I have had the occasional person sort of say to me well yeah but is yeah but is it real like they're not sure whether I'm actually putting putting it on or not like they seem to you know they they're coming at me with their skepticism saying yeah but that's you know like they're sort of picking holes in what I've in what I've written or what I've said and I'm and I'm not sure like one time somebody was like speaking to me face to face and I it's very hard sometimes to know whether like have they sussed that it's a joke or do I keep playing this this role because you know or do I say to them you know it is all nonsense don't you I I have made all this up I'm afraid and they don't seem to necessarily know it's very difficult to know on what level they've understood that it's all it's all bonkers so that that's odd, but I mean it's gratifying because I think well, not that I'm setting out to be convincing. I'm sort of I'm setting out to to be convincing on one level that you could read it and sort of see it as a genuine artifact of the type of thing it is. But at the same time, I want readers to kind of obviously be aware that it isn't real. It's all kind of a bit put on. 
but it's very gratifying when I'm unsure about whether they know that or not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so sort of carry on from that, having written about ghosts, for example, mm. if someone were to ask you what you think ghosts are, what would you say? Um, I don't know. It's very, it's very difficult. I think there could be, there could be a range of, of things, you know, like almost, you know, like the quantum, the quantum idea that things are waves at the same time as being particles or what have you. Mm -hmm. I think that ghosts might be, if, if such things genuinely exist, I mean, I could be persuaded by the idea that they're just sort of recordings of past events or past emotions that were quite heightened um, like some sort of trauma that's replaying itself in some way i could be i could be convinced of that um i probably could be convinced that it is some sort of um something in the ether or some sort of energy that's left over from from somebody's spirit um i don't know i some like again it comes back to this some things are very hard to explain away entirely you know i don't know have you if you've listened to the recent series the uh, uncanny that's been on the bbc mm. and um you know they look at some very interesting um ghost stories and they often have like one skeptic and one believer and they'll kind of put across arguments or reasons why um, a story might seem genuine or not, and and sometimes it seems as if the skeptic is is kind of really stretching to come up with some reasonable, plausible explanation why something might have occurred. You know, like a some sort of a poltergeist activity might have taken place, uh, and it just seems sometimes that it's a stretch. Although that could just be my willingness to believe and my credulity. I don't know, but yeah, I'm I'm not sure. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm. Along similar lines, really, I, I agree with you about Uncanny. I really enjoyed that really? series. I thought it was great. Yeah. But you're right. When they were having the section where they were, like you were saying, they have a, a skeptic and a sort of a, a believer. I was usually somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I was like, I, I yeah. can see what you're both saying, but, but you're right. Often the skeptic would say, well, maybe this happened and maybe this happened. And I'm thinking, well, that's too many maybes, really. I, <laughs> I think you're, you're reaching too far to explain what this what this is or, or explaining something away by really mundane you know like well the temperature had dropped and whatever and I think well I've been in rooms where you know it's cold outside but I've never ne heard like people moaning or banging against the window and stuff and you know it's like how often does that actually happen how often can you put that as an explanation for the sort of phenomena that this guy is claiming they've seen or whatever you know it just seems like no that can't quite cover it but yeah yeah absolutely i i'm open-minded really i i think mm. there are lots of different phenomena that kind of could go under the sort of the the ghostly umbrella i think some could be genuinely disembodied spirits somehow but i think a lot are probably mm. uh almost like you're going into a an altered state somehow mm. uh, something that I'm intrigued by is that in in a lot of non-Western societies, there isn't really a distinction between the supernatural and the rest of their culture. It's it's sort of it's embraced or it's into it's more integrated. Whereas in the West it's sort of put to one side. 
and encouraged to be forgotten about or not talked about. Um, and and in the cultures where where it is included, there is usually some sort of relationship between the living and the dead, and and one that is recognised and one mm. where there are there are practices that you undertake to sort of have communication. And in the West, we don't really have that. So I I imagine it's still sort of that did exist, and we had a sort of a communication with the 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 astral realm or whatever you want to call it and over time that's sort of quietened down and maybe there are things on the other side that want to interact with us and they don't know who to communicate with so they just they try and communicate with people and some people experience phenomenon and and it happens that way yeah yeah i i would go along with that and i like um the folk horror sort of element of it i think maybe that harks harks back to or that is part of what you're talking about there that in times gone by um we had a much greater connection to to the seasons and to the earth and to the land and and the changes and i suppose over time you know as we've kind of uh, adapted and brought in civilization and so on all that sort of stuff we've we've kind of lost that connection and i think maybe that kind of plays into what you're talking about there with this understanding of of spirits and like the wider cosmos probably Mm. and and but alongside that there's also the organizations that might sort of know what's going on and and, i i know that you sort of at least one edition of the of the zine you you hint at that with the the winter hill radio mast i i thought that was really good and the Um, and the sort of the corporation that runs that. I, I really enjoyed that one. Oh, uh, yeah, Nilex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that corporation, Nilex, is is another one. It's like kind of a repeating thing across several of the zines. Like they've got their fingers in lots of different pies. So it's, I suppose, yeah, it's the, uh, the giant capitalist sort of um, tentacled behemoth corporation that has is sinister and you think that maybe they've got some sort of understanding of this other realm and they are using it for you know their own ends and so Nihilex appear from time to time either because they've bought radio masts or because they've produced some new sort of chemical compound that they are hoping to try and put into different things so yeah again it sort of plays into that stereotype I suppose of, of kind of the evil corporation that maybe knows more, you know, that has some sort of access to higher understanding or alien technology or something. Hmm. And with that, I mean, con- conspiracy culture has been, had a bit of a bad time of it lately because it's, I always imagine conspiracies as being quite fun, but in the past few years, they seem quite dark. And <laughs> mm. How do you approach covering that kind of thing? I mean, I appreciate that your project is, is you know is entertaining and it's fiction but what do you think about conspiracies like that real real world ones i mean how do we do you think we can approach them in a in a fun way because i i I still enjoy them i just i'm always checking myself now when i talk about them because i don't want my friends to think that i'm the kind of conspiracy theorist that's been in the in the news lately I know it, it's difficult and I don't really know what the answer is apart and I wouldn't like to present myself as an antidote or an answer to it but I think it, it's just to sort of t- to take that approach of trying to put some sort of the fun element back into it you know before for the rise of 
social media and the internet when it was much more of a kind of like a, a strange club for people, I suppose. And, you know, maybe it had that much more sort of fun, enjoyable element. Uh, but as you say, it's become quite dark in recent times. And I don't know if it's just a pendulum swing and that maybe it will, as with many things, it will perhaps culturally begin to swing back a little bit. I don't know what the answer is. It's, it's you know, it's so easy now for people to come up with an idea and to spread that idea so quickly and forcefully. Uh, it's like conspiracy theories on, I don't know, what would, what would it be? On some sort of powerful drug. Out on steroids, I suppose, would be the uh, the cliche of saying. So yeah, but I I don't know. I, again, I'm similar to you. You know, I used to enjoy those sort of conspiracy theories. I was a big fan of people like Robert Anton Wilson and and that kind of era that seems to have gone by a little bit now. You know, because things have become a lot stranger or darker in the last few years. But you know, I. I really enjoyed reading Cosmic Trigger and others of other of his works and, and so on, that whole kind of conspiracy side of things. So it was always done with like the discordianism. It was always done with such a, a lot of humour uh, that was undercutting everything. And I don't know how to necessarily get that back into the, into the mix. Yeah. A, a, an example I think recently is um, with 5G, there was a lot of, skepticism about that and masts being set on fire and i mm. suppose it's more fun when a, when there's a conspiracy set in the 70s or 80s because at that time i think there was less technology around and and so using a, a radio transmitter to, to control people it's a bit more sinister and they've got more panache than nowadays like nowadays it's just it's kind of boring the the the, the conspiracy theories because also most people have a smartphone there's mm. no need for these organizations to sort of have arch conspiracies because lots of people are monitoring themselves anyway <laughs> yeah that's true yeah i think that's why setting things pre-internet or or that period of like the 70s and the 80s particularly the 1970s which is well known for being, you know, that kind of weird hauntological period. I think there's a comfort in it because you look back now and, it, and although there was some terrifying things going on, you know, like the threat of nuclear war, etc., it's very easy to look back now and see it as this kind of quaint period where, you know, it seems safe because it's it's happened now and we know it, it all worked out okay. Uh, and so you can set things in that realm and there's a kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, a harmlessness or a, or a gentility to it, like a panache to it maybe, that if you set things now or try and talk about things now in this current moment, it's, you know, it's difficult, much more difficult. Although having said that, we seem to be sort of heading toward, much closer to midnight again with the whole nuclear thing seems to be, you know, we have regressed in so many ways, it seems. Mm, and something else that reading the your zines reminds me of, in a way, is the public service films that were around in the 80s, um, which were often quite scary. Yeah. And, and again, uh, ingrained in my memory, ones about not playing on railway lines, <laughs> especially. 
I, uh, I remember having a school assembly where they, yeah. where they played that. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, it's um, definitely a different. And, uh, not playing by pylons, like flying pylons. Yeah, yeah. Pylons. Uh, absolutely. I think that's maybe why I, I, I really enjoyed the case file around the Winter Hill transmitter because that's essentially like a, a huge pylon. And yeah. I was really scared of pylons as a kid. I was, te- I was almost terrified of them, I think. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they are quite terrifying structures anyway, these kind of uh, giant guardians on across fields and on hills and things like that. So straight away, you, you know, and they and they have like a, a human-like form or a, a kind of a, a living sort of form to them, like with legs and sort of arms and a body almost. So yeah, they they do seem like something to be to be fearful of. Hmm. I remember there was one... I can't remember when it was. It must have been around, I reckon it must have been around 1987 because that was when there was a big storm. But there was one not far from where I lived that was just on its side. And it was like the, it was all rusted. It was like the skeleton of this beast. I just, um, it's funny how, like like you were saying, it, they do have a, a quality to them, like they are sort of alive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's slightly different, but I always remember when I was like early secondary school, we were and we were read um the iron man mm. by, um oh, what's the guy's name the poet oh ted hughes that's right yeah thanks yeah ted hughes and i remember we were we were read uh, the iron man by ted hughes and it, i don't know it's just really stuck with me i remember being like sat in in the room where we were and i remember the cover of the book and i remember the teacher sort of reading it out to us and i mean it's just a weird random memory but it's always stayed with me like the kind of the atmosphere or the ambience that it had this the you know um the story and it just it made me think of like pylons and things like that straight away and that's always stayed with me mm, yeah same here i i love that story i i was upset that when they did an animated version of it they they cut out the alien dragon <laughs> i love that character the space bat angel dragon um yeah but it the the animated cartoon does have a cool beatnik character which almost makes up for it but not quite <laughs> um yeah and, and weirdly enough um a few years later uh, a science teacher that we had uh, introduced uh, me and my friend to um black sabbath and oh, he, cool. was, he, talk, he talked to us about like Black Sabbath, and he gave he I think I remember he gave us a copy of Paranoid, uh, the album, and that was where I think I first probably heard uh, Iron Man's uh, sorry Black Sabbath's Iron Man, and I was equally blown away by that as well. So, no, that sounds cool. Yeah, it was. It's a great track as well. Yeah. So, um, are there any favorite mysteries that you have? Things that have um, along with you know the area that you live and and, and your creativity in general that you, you enjoy like uh, mysteries that may have been like sort of inspired the, the Uncle Terry of Albion um th- there's lots of lots of different ones that really um I find fascinating one of which is um the Philadelphia experiment which I don't know if you know what that is but it was mm-hmm. where um during the war, the Americans were supposedly uh, sort of trying to perfect um, camouflage technology, like invisibility to, to radar, and they ran an experiment, and a, a ship 
uh, completely disappeared. One of their warships uh, disappeared, or was said to have disappeared. And when it reappeared, it, there was talk of some of the the sailors that were on the ship were kind of welded into the metal, and they suffered burns and things like that. And there's this idea that maybe it, it travelled dimensions or travelled in time. And a film was made of it in the 80s called The Philadelphia Experiment. But that was one that I always thought was quite interesting. Uh, I mean, having researched it and looked into it a little bit more, it does seem like it's quite a, quite an easy one to debunk, really. But the whole concept of it, I think, is fascinating. Um, and that sort of appeared in the, in the latest OA that I've produced, number 12, which is um, the Black Birch Inn, which is a pub. And I have one of the stories where the pub was made to disappear in a similar sort of fashion for similar sort of reasons. So I like to sort of take, you know, take uh, that sort of conspiracy theory and, and mold it for my own ends in some sort of very small, strange way, you know, people trying to make a pub disappear. Yeah, that was one of the additions that you sent me. I, I love that one because it, it harks back to the history of that site. I liked how you knitted it all together, the, the history of that place. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe there's something more in the in the earth in some way there rather than you know just the kind of more recent history. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of a lot of that going on, like the kind of old time, like ancient time that holds lots of horrors and ghosts, like you know that that mm. sense of the uncanny. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, I do take sort of cues from all sorts of typical or well-known conspiracies. Like again, um, I've got. Uh, the Thackford Beast, which is my version of, uh, I suppose, the Bigfoot sort of legends. So that's another one. Um, I've even got some all-girl biker gang that appears. So that's not a conspiracy theory, but it's this kind of countercultural cue, I suppose, that I'm taking from you know, kind of biker gangs and and so on that I, I've co-opted into the, the mean back roads of Norfolk and, and Lincolnshire. <laughs> I mean, I I can fully believe that stuff like that was going on. I'm pre- in fact, I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> well, there, there's there's a great documentary from I think it might be from the BBC in like in the eighties that sort of like a fly on the wall documentary that follows a biker gang based in Norfolk. Uh, I think that actually the gang is called the Outcasts, and it's great. You know, it's all these sort of uh, blokes from Great Yarmouth that uh, sort of talk with it. Talk with a slight Norfolk accent, and they're just you know drinking beer and kind of aimlessly driving around in the eighties. It was it's great anyway. So that, that's kind of where I took a little bit of inspiration from as well. Like, you know, well, if it can happen, then surely you know I can twist that and make it even more unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I, I, a biker gang is um as as characters who spend their most of their time on back roads, and they're more often in a liminal space than in a than in a non-liminal one. Yeah, absolutely. That you know, they've removed themselves from the the norms of society already. So, as you say, that that their whole kind of raison d'être is, is being in a liminal space and and not kind of going by the norms of society. So straight away, they're kind of it's an ethos about you know being tuning into some sort of different frequency. So it's a great starting point, you know, to have this, and and it, and in my biker gang, they're called the Sinister Sisters, and and they're an all girl biker gang. So I think that's 
that's interesting as well to just sort of like have have that notion of the old girl biker gang. Definitely. And just to check, no characters from the Uncle Terry of Albion zines or, or podcasts have, have turned up in real life yet, have they? <laughs> not, that, not that I'm aware of, but I do often think I'm being watched. So it, <laughs> it's possible that they are just stalking me, waiting to present themselves. Alan, Alan Moore apparently met John Constantine one day in a in a record shop, I think. So I'm always intrigued when I talk to creative people, writers and that, whether they're... Um, whether they're the fi- fictions they cr- they create have, have pushed through into into our reality. <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm always hopeful, and maybe one day, you know, it could happen. Going back to the Philadelphia experiment and the Black Birch Inn, which you wrote about, um, do you think that including the military in these things does that lend credence to to talking about these sorts of subjects? Um, I think I think it's. It's a good kind of way to to explain things away, I suppose, like a, a deus ex machina, isn't it? Uh, where you can just say, oh, it, well, it's military involvement or they know something that we don't know and mm. they've got the technology. So, you know, you can play with that kind of cliche or that trope a little bit then. But, yeah, it is interesting. to. Yeah, I mean, like your previous episode about the, the UFO in, in Wales, you know, to what extent the military are involved in and, and, and aware of, you know, that UFO or what was going on there. So, you know, it, obviously there is a precedent for it. It does happen. Things have happened like that. So it, it is always a good, you know, a good way of explaining away things by just bringing in sort of some godlike figure or godlike force, which in this instance would be the military with all their technology and and intelligence and, and so on mm, i guess they're sort of the, the the secret keepers yeah yeah i mean and, and, the, and you know you've got things like the the men in black haven't you there's a long tradition of you know quasi-governmental figures turning up and you know trying to sh- shut things off or quieten things down or what have you mm. the recent uh well relatively recent footage of ufos is in association with um, U.S. Navy ships. It's, it's. Um, those seem to be the cases that make it to national news if they ever do. Yeah, well, I guess it's because the source. It's very hard to explain away, isn't it? Like you think, well, it's a much more credible source, I suppose, or it, in theory, it would be that something like the military or the navy is kind of filming it and posting it. You know, unless, you know, depending on how deep you want to go with your conspiracy. You know, it can either be, well, why would the military post this stuff if, you know, if they don't know what it is and it must be genuine and, and whatever, why would they make themselves look foolish? Or is it that they're doing that on purpose just to kind of soften us all up or, you know, kind of double cross us or double think us into, into, into this sort of manipulation of us not believing any of it? So, you know, <laughs> you can tie yourself in knots, I suppose, can't you? <laughs> Definitely. Well, what do you think? Do you do you have a theory about what might be going on? What with UFOs? Yeah, I mean, with with that recent footage, and yeah, with I, with UFOs in general, I suppose. Well, again, I'm sure it's a big universe, isn't it? And so it's very hard you know, until we know everything about it to to fully understand what what might be out there. Or I think you know, again, 
there's always going to be a percentage of these things which can't be explained away or are awkward in some way and you can't just point to oh it's x y or z so and they're the ones that are the most interesting so whether or not they're creatures or aliens alien technology or alien intelligence from other planets i don't know i mean it it could be that i don't know people from the future you know or or other dimensions you know it doesn't necessarily have to be alien but maybe it is you know that's that's the intriguing thing i don't know i'm open-minded about it really yeah same here i mean when i was talking to kaz who witnessed that um, incident in wales um yeah i mean she was talking about disclosure and i can completely understand having witnessed what she did why she would want that but mm. what i'd rather have is a it's just a space where people can can talk about this stuff without worrying that people think that they're crazy you know i yeah, mean yeah. I, I feel comfortable talking to you about it but but that's not always the case in in general i a good way of looking at it for me is like what number date would i have to be on before i <laughs> start talking about yeah. you know what ufos might be um so yeah i think that's what i what i would like is just a a feeling that it's okay to just throw some ideas around yeah i think most people most people are interested enough to what you know to sort of talk about this sort of thing even if it's just on a surface level you know it's just the trick is not going too deep too soon, isn't it? With you know, like on, on date number three <laughs> or whatever. But I mean, how does it work for you having this podcast? I mean, to to what extent do you get messages from people or people? You know, you, you tell people that you have a podcast and they go, "Oh, that's interesting. What's your podcast about?" Or so usually when I when I tell people I have a podcast um, and they ask what it's about, they're usually like, "Oh, oh, okay." Some people will quickly mention that they don't really believe in ghosts. and But a lot of people are interested in it or they'll say, oh, I've never really thought about that. So generally, it's it's benevolent. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But just going back to UFOs, I'm, I'm always intrigued by what if they're from here? I'm open to the idea that there might be more advanced technology on Earth than we're told about. And maybe that's what it is. And what would be the source of that advanced technology? Well, I, I don't know. It could be a breakaway civilization. It could be, I have to admit, my, my favorite theory is that it's a civilization in the ocean. <laughs> but I have a big pinch of salt next to me whenever I... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not one you bring out at dinner parties. No, no, or dates. <laughs> <laughs> but So just tell me, is this... Would this uh, theory be that, and the government or the military are in, you know, in cahoots or kind of have a relationship with this, or is it not at all? I don't think they're in cahoots. Um, I think they, I, I think they probably encounter stuff and they don't really know what it is. But it's, but it pays for them to give the impression that they do. The most compelling footage that I've seen recently is all near the ocean and shows drones whatever these things are these tic tacs going into the sea so if i had to say what i thought it was i would say it's advanced technology that's come from earth i i'm not sure it's from outer space it could be but i just i just feel like it's more likely to be local but you know it's just what i, what I think I have, I have nothing to back that up 
No, no, but I, you know, it's it's no more ridiculous than UFOs from far distant galaxies, is it? Really, I don't think. No, I, but I, I'm open to that idea too. I just, I always feel like, well, yeah. well, maybe if it's coming, it's more likely to be from closer to us, either in the solar system or on Earth, than than from thousands of light years away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know? Do you know if there's are there groups that that have this? outlook this point of view you know like i don't know i mean i there are definitely um, researchers who have written about usos so there's plenty of there's plenty of books about it i don't i'm not sure if there are groups or bodies that are sort of focused on on that area of research i tend to find that in terms of paranormal research that usually it often breaks down into two camps so for example in bigfoot research you'll have the flesh and blood researchers who think it's absolutely a like a relic hominid or some sort of some species of ape that we haven't found yet, and then the other camp will be more sort of, I guess it's called the the woo side that they think it's some sort of spiritual entity. And similarly with UFOs, I think there are the nuts and bolts UFO people, and the people who think it might be something from another dimension or like another a, a creature from another dimension or they'll look at the similarities between alien abductions and encounters with fairies. And so, yeah, and, but there doesn't seem to be that middle ground where someone can say, well, I'm, I'm sort of open to both of those. I mean, those people absolutely exist. I'm, I'm friends with people who are open to both of those concepts, but, but when it comes to sort of pinning down what the phenomena is, it more often than not, it will sort of, there'll be sort of two camps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I wonder, you know, if that will gain more traction or, or what have you in the coming years. I suppose it really depends what else comes to light. But yeah, I I would go along with that theory. I'm with you on that. Cool. Thank you. So, um, what's next for the for the Occultoria of Albion? You've got a you've got a zine. You've got a podcast, TV series, maybe next. Uh, <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm waiting for the phone call, obviously, um, for that to occur. But yeah, I'd love. I, I mean, I do. I do feel like I've sort of been developing this universe now, this world for for a while, and as it expands, I, I do sort of feel like I can just see other things, kind of that I can develop, and you know. So I'm really enjoying sort of doing the podcast episodes. I'm really enjoying doing the the booklets, the zines. Um, I do the occasional YouTube video. Uh, I'm, I'm not particularly good at, at filming or editing. and I don't have a, a lot of time, unfortunately, but I would like to. I could see it as like some sort of a, a TV series, I suppose. So, yeah, I just want to keep keep developing it. Um, I've got later this year, I'm hoping to have a paperback book out. It's like a part of the Aquataria of Albion sort of world or universe, if you will. Um, and just keep doing things like that. I've got a, a patreon set up so if anybody wants to actually fund and support uh the aquatera of albion they can become a, a patron it's like a fan club basically and uh, they'll get badges and extra zines and other extra bits and bobs so um that's that'd be great i'm trying to develop that a little bit as well that's uh, patreon.com forward slash aquataria wants to, to have a look at that so yeah Excellent. Yeah, well, I heartily recommend that. I, I I really enjoyed the zines that you sent to me, and I enjoy your podcast a lot as well. 
Oh, great! Thanks ever so much. It's nice to it's nice to hear that. And I, you know, I really I really love um, some of the sphere. I'm so glad I've sort of like stumbled across it. So. Oh, well, thank you, Richard. This has been a a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Hey, not a problem. Thank you for having me. If people want to find out more about the Occultaria, how best do they do that? Um, so, well, the main website where they can get the zines is uh, occultariaofalbion.com. Uh, so that's O-C-C-U-L-T-A-R-I-A of Albion.com, occultariaofalbion.com. Um, if they can listen to the podcast. I think you just need to go wherever you get your podcast from. And if you type in Occultaria of Albion, you will find my podcast. Um, yeah. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Again, just type in Occultaria of Albion and you'll find me. And it'd be great to, to hear from people. Excellent. Well, I'll put all that info in the show notes. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Richard. The Aquateria of Albion is a really fun and interesting project, so definitely check it out if you enjoyed the interview. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts is great for this, and Spotify recently added that option too. So if you use those platforms, I'd be most grateful for a positive review. Sharing the podcast on social media also really helps it to grow and find new listeners. Some other sphere can be found on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and you can subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also support the show with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you with some feedback or suggestions for future topics and guests, whatever you like. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.